What up? This is Dart Adams. This is episode 78 of Dart Against Humanity. Today's episode of Dart Against Humanity is going to be about a classic rap album that was released 30 years ago today. That album is Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted. For those of you that weren't around, Ice Cube was the front man and the main writer of N.W.A. Now, Ice Cube's role as the main writer of N.W.A. meant that he the spearheaded or he wrote a lot of the crucial verses or rhymes or came up with concepts for crucial songs in N.W.A.'s development over their career. He was kind of the linchpin the guiding light. You had Dr. Dre, who was the sonic guy. He was the guy who really made everything work. Because you can only say and do so much. But if you got Dre's beats behind you, people will rock with it. And where Cube was going sometimes with his lyrics, it wouldn't have been as palatable if it wasn't for the fact that Dre was so... Great, so adept at producing, creating these sonic sound beds, you know, these sonic landscapes that really took people on a journey. And then just the fierceness, the aggressiveness, the rhymes, even though a lot of them were really abrasive and sometimes jarring. There was a creativity, a cleverness, and there was lyricism there underneath all the um, the really abrupt, just anger, almost it sounded like, but it was channeled through something else. It was the perspective that had not been really heard as much in rap. And it was coming from the perspective of South Central Los Angeles slash Compton. And at the forefront were these guys in WA. Now, that being said, at the time, Ice Cube is between 18 and 19 when everything really jumps off, which makes it even more insane when you think about it in in retrospect, right? So we have Ice Cube coming up and he's the guy behind uh, Easy E's Boys in the Hood, which is one of the songs that puts them on the map, both in the West Coast, California, but nationally. So you got Boys in the Hood. He writes that. Eight Ball. He writes that. Dope Man, he leads off. Now, between 1987 and 1988, I remember hearing these songs everywhere, everywhere. It was a while before I actually saw a physical copy of an N.W.A. cassette. But they were on every mixtape imaginable. It wasn't getting played on the radio. And another thing was that cats would go away and come back with it. 
or you'd find somebody with a dub of a dub of it. So it was a minute before I actually saw the physical vinyl and or cassette tape of NWA or NWA and the Posse. Because again, it was um recorded on their label in the West Coast, California, and distributed by McCola. McCola distributed mainly to like the West Coast, the South or what have you. And then it had national distribution and made it to the East Coast. It wasn't like other distributors where, bam, it's everywhere immediately. And this is a conversation I've had with several people, especially cats on the West Coast. Um, I had a conversation with New Mark. You can probably find it on YouTube. And he said that there's a myth that uh, releases, especially in the mid to late 80s, happen simultaneously everywhere. No, there was a stagger. There was a delay. It might be there and it's going to take a while to get to you. Or we have it out here. It's going to take a while to get to you. That's how I remember it being. That being said, uh, you have Gangsta Gangsta that Cube's kind of behind. Fuck the police, which Ice Cube leads off. You know, he at one point he was Easy E's like main writer. But when we get into um, Easy E's debut LP, Easy Does It, he's not the main writer anymore. It's MC Ren and Doc T, who's now the DOC. Doc T of Fila Fresh Crew is now um, DOC. Okay? But he does write Boys in the Hood, which is on the album now. He writes No More Questions, which is a really um, influential joint. Let's put it this way. There was, a, um, I'm sure you remember this. And on SNL, there was a sketch that they did with um, Natalie Portman. And Natalie Portman's Natalie's rap was pretty much inspired by No More Questions, the Easy E song, which was written by Ice Cube. Okay. And then the album closes with like a spoken word joint, Easy, chapter eight, verse 10, which kind of um, harkens to Ice T, who used to, who was a while, he used to close albums to just do interludes where he would just do spoken word, like on some pimp shit, like they used to do on the old 70s albums. So that happens, right? But after they put out Straight Outta Compton, you know, Gangsta Gangsta, Fuck the Police, he writes Express Yourself, which at the time you have to remember that um, NWA was not getting on the radio. They were not getting airplay. The radio treated them like they didn't exist. Well, also because they had clean versions. But even when they did make a clean version, the radio was not playing it. And also you have to remember, this is the late 80s, when radio was super resistant to rap, no matter how much it sold. So what ends up happening is that they don't have videos playing on the video networks. They don't have their records playing on the radio. So Ice Cube makes it a point to create Express Yourself and has Dre do the rhyming. This is, this is a sticking point. This is important. Dre, the guy who makes all their music, as I said before, palatable in the first place, given the the lyrical content and and the the baser things that they rhyme about and the subject matter. Dre is the guy who makes it all work. So having Dre, the guy who isn't on record saying any 
anything terrible like maybe Easy E or Ice Cube or Ren has. He's the perfect guy to deliver Express Yourself. This is Ice Cube. Ice Cube writes it. This video gets played on MTV. Your MTV raps. This video gets played on BT. This video makes it on the box. This song actually gets played on the radio. So I'm just giving you a background of all the things that Ice Cube has contributed throughout the time of NWA's um, ascent, right? Now, we come up to Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton blows up. At this time, N.W.A. Are, have become the poster children for gangster rap, even though gangster rap existed or what they say gangster rap is existed way before N.W.A. Uh, entered the fold in 1987. You know, uh, 84, 85, you have elements of it. 85 is when really it jumps off with Schoolie D, you know. Uh, there were elements of it with with Spoonie G back at 79, 80, 81. You know, uh, a lot of people like to cite that a crucial turning point for gangster rap and the uh, the aesthetic is actually um, Beastie Boys, License to Ill, which if you listen to uh, Ice Cube's early group CIA, they have a song called My Posse. It sounds like... Uh, um, a Beastie Boy song, but also I could say that uh, Greatest Show on Earth by my almighty RSO, Boston's number one gangster rap group, sounded like it was a Beastie Boys joint too. They were just highly influential. And Beastie Boys were just, uh, were just like an evolution of what Run DMC were doing. They just had more guys in the group. Now, um, you look at cats like Ice-T, Toddy T, you look at what um, King T was doing, Just Dice, Cool G Rap later, from 86, 87 on, Rikers Island, Poison. You know, he's super lyrical, but then he still has those, those elements, right? And what Ice Cube did was he took that and flipped it on the next, into a whole nother new thing. He he was he created it was like a style evolution. There are innovators, and then there's a style evolution. You know, there's a progression, it's a continuum. So coming out of that, again, Ice Cube is really starting to wonder what's going on because I'm writing all these joints, I'm involved in all these albums, I'm crucial to the popularity. And success of this group. So I feel I should be compensated for it. And you have to remember during this time he's like 18, 19, 20. And he's this aware of what's going on. And of course, you know, he becomes really concerned about, you know, his compensation level, you know, his points, his splits, his percentages, his royalties, because now ruthless. Gold, gold, platinum, platinum. He's like, all right, so break me off. And then it comes down to the point of, you know, we got to sign these new contracts. He's like, hey, 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 I ain't signing shit. 
I want to know where's this money? Where's this being accounted from? We're not spending a shitload of money on promotions. We're not shopping stuff. We're servicing stuff to radio. That's for damn sure. We're not spending an exorbitant amount of money on videos. So where's the money? Because we should be making money hand over fist. Like our audience is between 66 and 75% white buying the music. Where's my money? So what happens is he splits after they come back off tour. And he's like, yo, I want off. But he has the honor part of his contract. But he's not going to let because Ruthless Records is distributed now by priority because they stopped working with McCola. McCola early on. Uh, gave N.W.A. problems because, again, N.W.A. was really crass, really abrasive, and they thought that their songs were going to prevent McCullough from, you know, selling, which wasn't the case. So they removed certain songs from their albums. They made a single, they put Panic Zone on side A because they thought that the electro dance... um vibe was going to be something that was going to sell people bought it for the b-side they took a bitch is a bitch off the nwa and the posse project and people were like what the fuck are y'all doing people are buying it for that that's one of the things that's one of the selling points so ultimately uh mccola was out of the picture they got up with uh, Priority Records to do their distribution. Priority put it back on and re-released it in 1988. And then it started shooting up the charts. Something that's a sticking point with me. If you go on uh, Wikipedia, they will list straight out of Compton's release date is August 1988. Not true. They released two singles. Okay. Between July and September 1988. Two singles, okay? What got released was Priority re-released NWA and the Posse in August 1988. It was not Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton was still in the process of being recorded. It didn't get released until February 1989 after Easy es album Easy Does It was out. There's no way Straight Outta Compton was released before it. Or at the same time as Easy Does It. I just need to. St- I just need people to understand that. So please stop saying Straight Outta Compton was released in August 1988. Disregard everything you read online that says that the album was released in February 1989. Okay. If you look again, if you look at the um, if you look at the records, if you look at the albums, if you look at the the catalog numbers on Ruthless Priority releases. It will be made abundantly clear that Straight Outta Compton was released after Easy E's Easy Does It. Okay? Now that that's out the way. Ice Cube goes solo. Ice Cube pretty much leverages with priority just to retain him to a solo deal. Because look at all the money I brought y'all with NWA. And also... If y'all don't give me a solo deal, I'm going to go to Def Jam. At the same time, Ice Cube is going back and forth with um, Chuck D and the Bomb Squad about producing his solo album. Because since he went solo, 
Cherry Heller and Easy E blocked Dr. Dre from doing any production on his solo record. So he's like, cool, I'm going to go over to the Bomb Squad. It's been reported that members of NWA said, if you go to the Bomb Squad, you'll barely go gold. Word, I'm going to tell them that. So Ice Cube, after weeks of correspondence, leaves California and goes to New York in January 1990 to search for producers and start working on his album as soon as possible because he wants to put it out before N.W.A. puts out their next album. This is crucial. He wants to beat them to market. So he wants to put out his album as soon as possible. If he can get his album done in a month, even better because he wants to rush it out. So what happens is he leaves for New York tries to meet up with Sam Sever, who produced one of his favorite albums of the previous year. Uh, he was one of the producers. Uh, third Bases, the Cactus album. He loves the Cactus album. If you listen to Giving Up the Nappy Dugout on a later album, uh, she got a lot of practice on Black Boys Jimmy's and White Boys Cactus. Like, he loved the Cactus album. Anyways, Sam Sever doesn't show up. So he's in the Def Jam offices like, shit. Because Sam Sever, again, was on a group called Downtown Science that was signed to Def Jam with Bosco Money. Room to Breathe is a classic. Slept on album. Radioactive. Just by chance, he goes outside and he sees Chuck D. Now, there was a a tour back in 1988 called Bring the Noise. The Bring the Noise tour, I believe is 88-89. The Bring the Noise tour had co-headliners. It was Public Enemy, NWA, EZE, and then everybody else. It was a hell of a tour. But on that tour, this is when Ice Cube first really gets to know Chuck D, the elder statesman of rap. Chuck D is like a decade older or more than Ice Cube. And he's just like laying down the law. He's he's just like stating facts and hipping them to the game. And it's like kind of taking them under his wing. So when he shows up and he sees Chuck, he's like, oh, what up, Chuck? They're going back and forth. And Chuck's like, hey, 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 hey. So um, tonight... We're going to go to Green Street Studios and we're going to record this song with Big Daddy Kane called Burn Hollywood Burn. You want? You should come down. He's like, all right, word. His first day in New York. He gets in the studio, does a four bar verse on Burn Hollywood Burn. You hear him, you hear how he sounds on the Bomb Squad beat and the rest is history, right? Now, I've written like a almost 3,000 word piece about this on Medium. I'm looking at it right now. It is called Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted, a 30th Anniversary Retrospective. It's going to go up on Medium at midnight. So I'm not going to really get into it that much like that because you can read that and I go into, I go in depth. One of the source materials that I used, of course, was 
uh, check the technique volume two by my boy Brian Coleman because I like to be accurate and do research. I look through some other, you know, interviews and things of that nature. Ice Cube actually has a thing that he's doing himself that you can like go to his uh, Twitter account and he has audio. And they're like old. If you go on YouTube, there's actually uh, many documentaries covering the album. So I want you to like go and see as much as what he has to say about the album. But what I'm going to do right here is I'm going to talk about how it affected me and my experience with it being 14 going on 15 when the album came out and how it kind of changed how a lot of people saw rap and how it influenced so many other um, future generations of MCs and just listeners in general. Like... The album comes out, first of all, you have to remember that Ice Cube is Ice Cube of N.W.A. All right. That's the only frame of reference people have for him. And he kind of wants to break out of that. So when Ice Cube uh, leaves for New York, he has all these ideas that he was going to do for N.W.A. He has all these rhymes that he was going to try to give to Eazy-E. You know, he has all these concepts he wanted to do and try to sell on Dre. And of course, the thing about with Dre is that you can have an idea and present it to Dre. But if Dre ain't feeling the idea, there's no collaboration. There's no give take. There's no compromise. If Dre doesn't like it, it's not happening. If you give something to Dre or if you present something to Dre and Dre thinks it's dope, he's going to push it to, for easy. If you bring something to easy, easy likes it, then it's going to work. But to try to sell Dre on something wasn't really working. So Ice Cube had a whole bunch of ideas, a whole bunch of concepts that probably wouldn't have worked in the NWA setting. So he was looking to branch out. And do things he hadn't done before. And there are rhymes that he wrote that he kind of, and things he intended for Easy E to do that now he could do. And he could put a different spin on it because he's not writing it for Easy and his audience. And when he started working with the Bomb Squad, it was a completely different situation because they believed in working with him. It was an actual partnership there was compromise there was give and take everybody was involved everybody had a role you know a lot of people say that the bomb squad is like a assembly an assembly line you know but that's kind of what it is everybody was involved everybody had a role people added their things to stuff people came in reduced uh put in an extra piece put in something that was missing, changed the pitch on something, did some scratching, laid some guitar, uh, put in an extra piece, you know, something. Everybody touched touched it, so it was a real collaboration, which is something that Cube just wasn't used to. He learned about album sequencing, the importance of that, you know. He learned how to really make an album from start to finish, from scratch, from conception to completion. He learned all these valuable lessons from the bomb squad by leaving home 
and putting himself in a vulnerable position and putting himself in a place where he had to trust and believe in himself and do something he had never done before. Even though he had all the talent in the world, you can believe in yourself all you want to, but sometimes you're just unsure if you can actually execute those things in your head. And it happened. And it happened before you turned 21. He released a classic debut album. After years of being involved with classic albums, but him not necessarily being the full driving force behind it. But what this album did was it set him on a trajectory to create even more influential and better art. So here's the thing about um, America's Most Wanted. America's Most Wanted is easily one of the most influential and greatest rap debut albums of the past 30 years. However, as great as this album is, it's been overshadowed by his later work. When you think about Ice Cube, you don't think about America's Most Wanted. What you think about might be um, Death Certificate. You know, you might think about The Predator. But you don't necessarily think about America's Most Wanted first. No, just like when people think of Red Man, the first thing they think of isn't what the album. It just isn't. That's his debut. That's when he was starting out, but he got better from there. You know, it's not like with Nas. When people think of Nas, the first thing they typically think about is Illmatic. Or if they're younger, the first thing they think about is it was written, which I get it, but I don't. Now, Ice Cube goes off and becomes an icon. I write that by the time he turned 25, he was already considered a legend, which is true. Now, being a young kid who'd heard all the NWA uh, offshoot albums, I'd heard NWA and the Posse, you know, I'd heard Straight Outta Compton, I'd heard Easy E, Easy Does It. I remember hearing it at Thanksgiving. I heard DOC's album. Somebody had JJ Fad's record. JJ Fad's record was more produced by um uh Arabian Prince and maybe Yella Andre in some places. I wasn't in the JJ Fad at all. But JJ Fad went platinum. And they were on Ruthless. So, you know, it's part this part of like their empire. You know, you got CPO, you know, you had uh you had um above the law. You know, like you had the offshoot groups from NWA. So like you hear all the DOC. So you hear all that. So you have an idea of what these cats could do when Dre's in the picture, but you don't have any point of reference of what Cube would do without Dre. 
So for Ice Cube to get with the Bomb Squad was like, yo, you're going to take a West Coast dude, a dude that's super West Coast, South Central Compton, and you're going to go to New York, in particular Long Island, you know, Hempstead, Freeport, Roosevelt, Long Island, you know, Strong Island. How are these things going to merge? How are they going to work? Can it work? And Ice Cube came out the gate and said, I'm going to make a perfect blend of West Coast gangster shit that's social political in nature, towing the line between being conscious and gangster. Revolutionary but gangster before Tupac. That's one of the things I wrote. And he executed it. And he created a lane for a lot of other people. And the thing is that it's crazy because when I think about it, he kind of did it right before. Like he made it so that when Paris did it later in 1990, like September, October, December 1990, Going into 1991, what Paris did was like, oh, I get it. For those who don't know Paris, Paris was signed to Tommy Boy. He released his first album, The Devil Made Me Do It. He was called the, uh, the Black Panther of Rap. But Ice Cube releasing America's Most Wanted and then the Kill It Will EP right afterwards is kind of what opened the door for people to get what Paris was doing. Because you had X-Clan. X-Clan came out around the same time. So right before uh, America's Most Wanted comes out, like two weeks before that, we have um, X-Clan and Poor Righteous Teachers. So X-Clan releases uh, to the East Blackwards. And X and um, you have uh, Holy Intellect by Poor Righteous Teachers. So... X-Clan is super like black nationalist, um, black empowerment, but poor righteous teachers are more along the like 5% nation rapping, chatting, like Jamaican chatting, you know, like that thing, but like dope dudes from New Jersey, you know, and X-Clan is based in New York. But then you have Ice Cube who's doing this gangster shit, calling women bitches all over the place, talking about his get, and it's produced by Public Enemy who don't do any of that shit. So it is crazy to hear like Ice Cube talking about doing a song called What They Hitting For, talking about some West Coast Compton shit. Over a beat that was supposed to go to true mathematics or like Son of Berserk or at the time while they're working on stuff at 510 and then going to Green Street, you have Buster Rhymes and L.O.N.S. there and then you also have like Cameron ATA, DJ Scribble, Firstborn there watching from young black teenagers. 
at the same time, the bomb squad is working on, and his was crazy. The same time, the bomb squad is still trying to finish their album. Okay, they're trying to finish uh, "Fear of a Black Planet." They're like fifty to seventy-five percent done with "Fear of a Black Planet." At the same time, they're finishing with Sir Jinx and Ice Cube, uh, "America's Most Wanted." They did America's Most Wanted in about a month's time, so four weeks. Mixed, mastered, and turned in to uh, priority in about a month. That's insane. And they're working on their album. At the same time, they're working on finishing um, Belle Bib DeVoe's Poison. Can you imagine how chaotic it had to be? For Ice Cube to be like, yo, I need to hurry up and put this album out. All right, fine. Do this. Go here. Fuck with these records. Do this. Do this. All right. This is what we're going to do. I want this. I want this. I want that. All right, let's get in the studio. Bang this shit out in a month. Mix it. Master it. It's out. And then they go back to, well, by the time um, they had already finished Poison. So Poison was done. They did three or four songs on there. That's a nine album song. Did the mixing, mastering, send it out. That shit's already out in March. You know, so that album's out when they um, turn in America's Most Wanted. And it's insane because you get to see the response. And Ice Cube tells a story about how uh, X-Clan came over to the studio and played their album before they released it. So you can imagine like all this energy happening. At the same time, it's just insane when you think about it. But Ice Cube releases an album that is like a benchmark in the progression of rap history for both an artist that's part of a successful group to carve his own niche and um, rebrand himself. In a sense, because it's not like he did things that were really that much different than what he was doing. But to come to the East Coast, that took a lot of balls when you're like as West Coast as it gets. But still retain what makes him him. You know, that's one of the things that Sir Jinx was really um, instrumental in, you know, and he came with the lynch mob. The first mention of the lynch mob is... On Express Yourself. W.A. is the lynch mob. Written by Cube. So Cube already had the idea for the lynch mob in his head. When Ice Cube takes J.D. J.D.'s Gafflin. Um, takes J.D., T-Bone, uh, K.D., Sir Jinx. Has Yo-Yo come in and do It's a Man's World. Um, and then she gets signed to a deal. Before he even started Street Knowledge, he already had the lynch mob. He listed the name of the lynch mob members on the back of the album. So Ice Cube already had a gang when he left N.W.A. You know, so it's not like he left and he was just like, oh, shit, I'm ass out. I got to figure out something. No, he had a plan. He already knew. And he, he was probably he was orchestrating everything while he was on tour. And he was waiting to hear back about his royalties and his checks and his compensation for his contributions to N.W.A. and Eze e 
and other um, Ruthless Records joints because he know he was a huge part in the growth, the popularity, and the surge of of interest in NWA. And then that role fell on uh, MC Ren and DOC, who stepped up and who they stepped up admirably and they, you know, did an excellent job. If you listen to um, 100 Miles of Running the EP and then you listen to um, Niggas for Life album, you know, they stepped up and they, that is an incredible album. But the fact that the matter is, did Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted into Kill It Will into Death Certificate into The Predator completely overshadowed N.W.A. And what further overshadows N.W.A. is when Dre goes solo and releases The Chronic. All these things were put into motion by Ice Cube going solo. Now, being a kid, listening to this album, playing this album to death, listening to shit like The Bomb, rewinding The Bomb, and just listening to all these different pieces and how all this stuff works. And it's like, you listen to Public Enemies, um... Fear of a Black Planet. It's like, to me, Fear of a Black Planet is the last great Public Enemy album where the noise works. Then you listen to um, America's Most Wanted and it's another album where the noise works. 1990. Like, and the thing is that you listen to albums made by other artists after the Bomb Squad kind of, you know, sampling kind of killed the Bomb Squad's effectiveness and how they were actually able to adapt. So you listen to DJ Muggs. What DJ Muggs did on the first Cypress Hill album is directly a response to what the Bomb Squad did on Fear of a Black Planet and America's Most Wanted. You know? He managed, DJ Muggs managed to make the noise noisier, but West Coast, but still by able to incorporate sampling and and pastiches and things like that in a way that couldn't be done anymore with the Beastie Boys on Paul's Boutique. He managed to figure that out sonically. That's why the What You Want remix done by, you know, DJ Muggs and Soul Assassins work so well. But, like, if you look at the continuum, a key point, a key point, part of that is listening to Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted. It kind of laid a blueprint for a lot of people that wanted to, like, create an album that defined them or created a jumping off point for them to grow and progress. And I feel like it's been forgotten about a lot because 
again, Ice Cube's later material, later output, overshadows it. And the thing is that with the passage of time, a lot of things get obscured. And I feel like, yes, Ice Cube's later albums overshadowed America's Most Wanted, but also The Chronic by Ice Cube, my Ice Cube, by uh, Dr. Dre, overshadowed what um, America's Most Wanted was. I feel that in a lot of ways that also um, it was overshadowed by the breakout success of um, Cypress Hill because if you look at Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill's first album, you know, Cypress Hill's self-titled, the second album, even bigger, third album, even bigger. So while some people latch on to that first album, like this is where it all started. You look at that second album, you're like, dude, insane in the membrane. And when the ship goes down, you know, like. Dude, think about it. And it's the same thing with Ice Cube. Ice Cube dropped that album and there was one single. Wasn't played on radio. He didn't have a video into Who's the Mac. When Who's the Mac came out, the album had already been gold for over a month. That's insane. There was no video. No radio airplay. Ice Cube had the number one rap single. And it had never been played on the goddamn radio. And it was the title track of his album. Do you understand how insane that is? I write about this. And as I was writing it, I almost had to stop myself and fact check it. As I, Even though I knew it was the case because I had already fact checked this six months before I wrote it. And it was going to be a sticking point. Ice Cube had the number one single on the rap charts. Number two and three was The Power. Snaps The Power and The Power version with um, Chill Rob G. Number four was You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. And number five was 911 is a Joke. It was two behind 911 is a joke. Do you know how insane it is to do, to make an album with Public Enemy and the Bomb Squad? You have Chuck D on one song. You have Flavor Flav on another song. That album came out the month before yours. And your song hits number one over their song, which has a video and gets radio airplay. Do you understand how insane that is? Ice Cube went number one on the rap charts in the era of MC Hammer. He goes gold right before, MC, I mean, uh, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby starts shooting up the charts. Do you understand how insane that is? Then he puts out an EP right afterwards, Killer Will. 
right after NWA puts out um, 100 Miles of Running and disses him all over it. Ice Cube doesn't, it, when you listen to it, it kind of sounds like he's referring to them on some songs. But he actually wasn't. He was just talking about like situations in general. So I guess they heard it. They were like, oh, he's talking about us. But of course, you just have to think that like how hard it is to try to divorce yourself or remove yourself from a situation and try to carve your own niche and create your own identity with your own crew and how hard that is and how scary it is to go to a 3,000 miles away from home so you can come back home. And I still think about that 30 years later, the feeling that I had playing that song or playing that album in my Walkman, playing it in a stereo system in my house, me and my younger brother, um, how our friends, friend group reacted to it. One of the most visceral and long lasting memories I have is hearing that tape playing out of cars Hearing it blaring out of headphones on the train, whether it be the green line or the orange line. And there was this moment back when I was at Boston Latin. We were in the um, the weight room because I used to hang out. My friends played basketball and football. I could never have the grades. I, I didn't want to play football because I didn't like the idea of getting hit and getting a um, concussion because I need my brain and I remember everything that ever happened and I was I did I was not up for a head injury or a brain injury uh-uh no anyways we're in the weight room now in the weight room it's black dudes white dudes Asian kids Latinos all of us from like different parts of the city, different backgrounds. It's Boston Latin School, so it's an exam school, so it's the smartest of the smart. But we have the most different possible backgrounds you could imagine. Got a lot of white kids that are there who would not be in a public school if it weren't for the fact they were at Boston Latin. They would be in a parochial school, they would be in a private school. They would not be in a public school, Boston Latin, that was in walking distance from the South End, Lower Roxbury, that you could walk to Ruggles Station from. They would not. They would not go to school here to the point where they didn't call where Boston Latin was Roxbury. They called it the Longwood Medical Area. It's Roxbury, goddammit. Look at the zip code. I can walk home. It's the zip code. Goya Boys is outside. Is the is Roxbury. Now, that being said, we were in the weight room and they played music in the weight room. And Ice Cube's dead homie starts playing. Everybody knows the fucking words. Everybody raps along to dead homies. 
the entire song. Everybody knew the words. There's 30 kids in this motherfucking weight room. I will never forget that as long as I live. I had so little in common with a lot of the people I went to Boston Latin with. There weren't my homies, there weren't my crew that I didn't eat lunch with, that I didn't see on the train, that I didn't live, live near, that weren't related to me. But all of these kids were all saying the words to dead homies off of Ice Cube's Kill It Will EP. Like was motherfucking Tiny Dancer. And this was almost famous. I will never forget that as long as I live. And I think that's going to be the last thing that I um that I leave y'all with. Again, my piece on Medium is called Amer- Ice Cube, America's Most Wanted, a 30th Anniversary Retrospective. It will go up at midnight. This podcast should be up right after midnight because I want to stagger it. I want to give you enough time to read Before you listen to the podcast. Anyways, thank you for listening. And I'm going to figure out something to talk about next week. God damn it. One.